Welcome to Lake Kick is Live. It is Sunday night, July 25th, the year of our Lord, 2021. Jam-packed is an understatement to describe the show tonight. We're going every angle, and I respect, by the way, the multitude of angles that the bombshell story that we've all been talking about over the past week has. We're going to hit a bunch of different angles on this tonight. In that sense, it'll kind of be a unique show. It's going to be a jam-packed show, as jam-packed as we've had all throughout July. I can promise you, and I, I sit in a pretty authoritative seat to be able to deliver that promise. So we have the Texas-Oklahoma SEC angle. We've got the Texas A&M jaded sort of angle. We've also got the inevitable conference realignment angle. I have spoken to as many people as I possibly can about this over the past What's it been since we talked? 72 hours. And so, yes, we're going to dive in very deep. That's not all we're talking about on the show tonight, though. And we thank you so much for watching. We've got a loaded live chat. We had our third most watched show ever the other night, in season or out of season. We don't say the O word. So thank you for that. October 9th is something we're going to discuss tonight. I've already told you how loaded week one is. We've already given you the huge marquee banner of why we love, which games we love in week one. But October 9th, I think it's week 7, week 8, something like that, that's the Saturday. That's the one to circle. If you can have no other Saturday off, that's the one to take off. I'm going to tell you why uh, during this show tonight. Also, got several quarterback questions for some big programs, names you recognize, but I think questions that maybe you have right along with me. It's an interesting year in college football because you think you know who the finalists are going to be. You think you know who the favorites in every conference are, but and you may, but yet you circle them. And there are legitimate questions on these programs. They are not immune to the same struggles that maybe some of your other programs have dealt with over the past few years. So I say all that to say, settle in. It's going to be a jam-packed show. Like I said, I try to give thanks anytime I can, and that means every show. Our Thursday show, based solely on word of mouth from you guys, Colin, correct me if I'm wrong, we paid zero dollars to promote it, still haven't. Our marketing budget remains on the floor here, was our third most trafficked show ever. As we sit here again, I want to stress in July, which gives you a little peek behind the curtain of what we expect when August and camp rolls around and when September and games roll around. Thank you so much for that. It is abundantly obvious based on the correspondence I've had this week in the inbox, also on Twitter, the DMs have been lit up. I think the most common feedback that we've gotten this week is a thanks for the way we do the show, which is validation. I I appreciate when you say that because I appreciate the thanks, but I appreciate it because it validates that we're stacking the show the right way. And every time that we talk about, and it's mainly Director Colin and I and our crew, Noah and company down in Fort Lauderdale, when we talk about how we're going to format this show and stack this show, our goal at the end of the day is for you to watch it or listen to it and then say, it feels like I put this show together for myself. That's the goal. And a lot of your feedback without being, you know, kind of nudged by us has been along those lines. So we really appreciate that. At Late Kick Josh, Twitter, Instagram, it is imperative that you're following those accounts because I, you know, you lick your finger, you stick it in the air. It just feels like a breaking news sort of week's coming up. So at Late Kick Josh, Twitter and Instagram, lock in because, I mean, the pedal's on the ground now. From now through the national championship game, uh, it's wall to wall. We are not taking days off. It's time to go. So let's hop right in. Texas and Oklahoma, the very latest. Like I said, it feels like it's going to be a breaking news kind of week. I expect this process, and that process being these two moving to the SEC, or at least making it abundantly clear they're going to, I expect all that to start playing out this week. This is not one of those stories, if you've been a casual observer, that you're going to wait three months, six months, two years on. It's not an NCAA investigation, in other words. There's a lot going on here. But imagine a world, I'm about to give you a quote in just a second, but imagine a world where we didn't have SEC media days last week. I thought about this a lot this week. A lot of you have DM'd me about this too. What if we would not have gotten the Houston Chronicle story, just to start it off here? Can you imagine a world where you go to work tomorrow or Tuesday, whenever this stuff really starts to snowball, and all of a sudden you're at lunch and you're driving back to the office and you know you check your phone in the parking lot before you go in, and with no warning, Oklahoma and Texas are leaving the Big 12. They have informed them they intend on joining the SEC. SEC member institutions are about to vote on this tomorrow. What would that have done? A week before camp opens, what would that have done? It's still going to be huge, but at least we have a little heads up it's coming. So we know what we know. There are some things that have happened in the past hour or so, I would say, 
So let's, in Fort Lauderdale, let's throw this graphic up. This is Bob Bowlesby, the commissioner of the Big 12, after meeting with officials from Texas and OU just a little while ago. Okay, this is happening in the last few hours. Quote from Bob Bowlesby, the meeting was cordial and the executive committee of the Big 12 expressed a willingness to discuss proposals that would strengthen the conference and be mutually beneficial to Oklahoma and Texas as well as the other member institutions of the conference. Bowlesby adds, I expect that we will continue our conversations in the days ahead and we look forward to discussing thoughts, ideas, and concepts that may be shared and have shared interest and impact. So essentially, this entire statement brought to you by the late 80s or early 80s hit, Don't Stop Believing by Journey, because that's the message. Don't stop believing. Hey, we're still in this. Still got a fighting chance. Uh, Hold the rope. Bob Bowlesby has told his conference to hold the rope. How's all this going to happen? Because I personally, even though I'd love to see it happen, I don't think these two are staying in the Big 12. So how's this going to happen? A lot of you have asked me that. A lot of you are very curious. Well, the way, we don't have a lot of experience in this, granted, but the way it probably happens is at some point, it seems inevitable, Texas and OU will inform the Big 12 of their intention to leave. They'll then start that process. Shortly thereafter, it appears you'll have a vote for the member institutions in the SEC A lot of you have held on faintly to the hope that maybe there'll be enough no votes in order to just derail this concept from the get-go. Spoiler alert, I've seen how that part ends, there won't be. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if you have a 14-0 vote, or maybe a 13-0 with Texas A&M abstaining. That'd be a classy move, or something else with a Z on the end. Uh, I would just wait and see how all that plays out, okay? I think it's going to play out sooner rather than later. And thirdly, we just wait to see how many details are made public. So... What could derail this? Short of the no votes in the SEC, which aren't going to happen, what could derail this? Uh, Because I am one that wouldn't mind seeing it derailed. I have made my statement on this, and I will reiterate it in just a couple of minutes. And as usual on the show, when I say something, I then have to circle back and tell you what I didn't say, because that's what the comment section has been filled with. How does this get derailed? Well, there are some people who believe political pressure in the state of Texas and or the state of Oklahoma could derail this. Based on, I think, the best reporting that's been out there, and then based on anyone I've talked to about this, specifically in the state of Texas, no one close to the situation out there believes that any of that is viable, only because the folks who are pulling the wheel here, driving, holding the wheel, and driving the bus, have had the proper political operatives, figures, etc., read in on this the entire time. So there is no one that holds the keys to this whole situation surprised at the last minute, swerve, etc. So I don't think that's going to happen. How could you derail this? If you're holding out hope, there's one interesting caveat here. If you want to make sure these two don't join the SEC, you obviously either have to have them change their mind and stay in the Big 12, or what if the Big 10 or the ACC were to step up? And you ask, well, Josh, how would you do that? What edge are they going to have over the SEC? The SEC has got more attraction. This is true. That just means you have to have a different edge. You have to have a different angle. And if I'm the Big Ten, and if I'm Kevin Warren, clearly I'm not, but if I am, I'm looking and I'm saying, I've got to do something. It is so imperative that the Big Ten acts right now. It is so imperative that the ACC acts right now. But what edge could you have? Well, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking either you offer them equal to what the SEC is offering, which you cannot do. I mean, it is so huge for Texas for a recruiting pipeline alone to get in the SEC, outside of several other factors. But there's this one little caveat that keeps on hanging on the side of every argument that's made for this and every proposal that's made for Texas and Oklahoma to enter the SEC. Every proposal for the Horns and the Sooners to come in the SEC keeps reminding you that it is going to cost them a lot of money if they want to get out of that Big 12 deal early. It's going to cost them in the neighborhood of $150 million. And even in a cash-rich environment, the likes of which these two hang out in, Yes, that's a lot of money. Well, I want to ask you this. If you're running things in the Big Ten, for example, and you're looking to think outside the box at the 11th hour in order to circumvent a hostile takeover of college football, which this is nothing less than by the SEC, I wonder if it would not greatly behoove you in the long run, commonsensically and financially, to just bite the bullet and make that the sweetener in your offer to try and derail this. If you're Kevin Warren and the member institutions in the Big Ten, what would you rather do? Would you rather offer to pay that 150 for him in exchange for getting him to the Big Ten next year? Or would you rather keep the cash in your pocket, watch the SEC print it with 
eight-tenths of the major programs in America at their disposal inside their boundaries over the next however many years and end up losing on the back end? Like, how would that play out for you? So I would really, if you're trying to think outside the box, suggest something along those lines. Because I don't know where the SEC stands on that. And I don't know where, in terms of litigation, that's going to go. But right now, that's the thing holding this up from happening next year, is it costs a lot of money when you're kind of hammered into those TV deals. It costs a lot of money to get out of them, those grant of rights deals, which most people have learned a majority that they know about this past week when it comes to grant of rights deals. But the feedback for all this has been mildly surprising to me this week. I thought when the news broke, most people in the SEC were going to be on board with it. Whether I was or not, I thought most SEC fans were going to be on board with it. And I did, of course, unscientific polls on my own social channels, but I've listened and I've got a pretty good feel of the pulse down in the SEC. I don't think a majority of the fans are on board with it. And so it's been met with a lot more resistance for the public at large than I thought most people expected. Now, that's not what's going to make the decision at the end of the day, but I think that's still a mild surprise. There is a large percentage of the SEC that's against it because they don't really see any added benefit. And I think that even if you're SEC or you are team logo first, you still do in some shape, form, or fashion care about the sport. And if you look at what this does to the future of the sport, you may not like what it means for college football. But also, there's been a lot of these two things in my inbox, my DMs. It's been, well, why would you be scared of Texas and OU to come to the SEC? Um, I don't think fear is what's motivating any of the pushback. Not to be disrespectful, let me just assure you, it's not fear. It's no one shaking in their boots in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, at the thought of the Texas Longhorns or Oklahoma Sooners entering the conference. I think there are other emotions. I don't think fear is one of them. And then the second, and this is so based in ignorance uh, across the landscape of society, not just college football, that I won't pay it much mind, people suggesting that change is good. It can be can also be terrible. I could start this show at two o'clock in the morning next week. We changed the start time. Is that good? I don't think it is. Uh, but if you judge by the comment section of some of these videos, change is good, baby. Now, change is not always good. If you are a pro wrestling fan, we try to mix in at least one pro wrestling metaphor per week on the show. Anybody who knows about the history of pro wrestling and the former territory days, if you're of a certain age, you remember Mid-South, you remember Crockett, you remember Continental, you remember all these different territories. And once upon a time, the name Vince McMahon in pro wrestling just meant the guy up in the Northeast. But then slowly but surely, everything got consolidated and it got bought up and it got eaten up. And then if you wanted to watch pro wrestling, eventually by the time I come along in the 90s, you got a couple options. And then eventually, bigger shark eats big shark. And then you got one option. And you better love World Wrestling Entertainment or else you're out. Well, I was out because I don't like the product. And so it really, really makes you look back and say, I wonder what those days would have been like when you had all kinds of different territories. I just wonder in the future of college football, if we're 20 years down the road and the dust has settled, if you're sitting there telling a 15-year-old kid, once upon a time, we had something called the Pac-12 and the Big 12 and the SEC, it was still the predominant conference, but the Big Ten was huge, the ACC was huge, and now we have, I don't know, fill in the blank, whatever we have 20 years from now. I told you my big concern on this is the letter C, or the letters SEC just become CFB, uh, which I don't think is really in the best interest of anyone outside of maybe the Southeastern Conference and maybe not even the Southeastern Conference. Last little thing I wanted to mention on the Texas front before I move on here, as I said, there are several angles we want to hit tonight. Last little thing that I was thinking about. I'm very curious if the University of Texas understands what this life is like in the SEC. Not Oklahoma. Leave Oklahoma to the side for a second. I think they are perfectly conditioned to live this life. But I really wonder if Texas is ready to live that SEC lifestyle. You may think you are. Everyone thinks something, but until they experience it, they don't really know. And what I mean by that is it was almost preordained that when Texas walked around Big 12 circles, you had to hit one knee and you had to bow. And you had to tilt that head down a little bit. Why? Because Texas just walked in the room. And I just, I want to let folks in Austin know, when you walk in the SEC, they say, welcome. I think there's a seat open over there by South Carolina. Welcome. I mean, that's what they tell you. And then you say, no, 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 well, I mean, we're Texas, so we're not going to go sit next to South Carolina. Well, yeah, you are. Because everyone here splits the rev evenly. You don't get to load your own network up in your wagon and drag it to the conference with you. You don't get to bring any of that. Everyone's kind of treated equal. Now, you will not be equal to South Carolina because that logo still carries a ton of weight. But what I'm saying is 
I was reading Seth Emerson's work over on The Athletic the other day, and he was making the point, listen, even Nick Saban hasn't totally gotten his way. It feels like it. It's a myth that he kind of runs the conference. No, he doesn't. Uh, There are several proposals that he has supported and been turned away on. And in Texas, they're not used to that. We are Texas means something in the Big 12. It means everything in the Big 12. That's what's rubbed a lot of folks in the Big 12 the wrong way. And I'm just telling you that SEC lifestyle is a little different. You walk in the SEC and you say, hello, we are Texas. And a dude at a service station looks back and says, well, hey, I'm Steve. We're going to pump your gas just like we do everywhere else. Uh, again, you can go sit next to Vanderbilt and you're going to get the same revenue share they do. And I hope you have fun here. And it's like, no, no, we're Texas. Yeah, again, I'm Joey. Like, welcome Welcome to the party. That's what life is like in the SEC. So I haven't really taken a lot of part in all these conversations about how Texas is going to do on the field in the SEC because it's, like I said the other day, it's, it's one or two-year thinking instead of 10 or 20-year thinking. I, I think competitively, Texas fits in very well. Oklahoma fits in very well. Culturally, just interesting to watch is all I'm saying. Moving on, kind of but not really. A lot of you, well, most of you don't live in College Station, Texas. Most of you did not go to Texas A&M. So you've probably heard a lot of bluster from Texas A&M this week, but I would venture to guess nine-tenths of you don't really know what it's all about. So allow someone who also didn't grow up in Texas to explain to you what it's like living in Texas. Here we go. No hypocrisy at all in this. I have had a lot of feelings about Texas A&M, to be honest with you, over the last week. Part is empathy and part is frustration. So I'm going to explain both of them. Because the cry from Texas A&M has been like fivefold. Uh, partly, they think they got played by the SEC. You could make a strong argument they did, although I've heard some folks push back behind the scenes and out front. Leadership at Texas A&M, what they knew versus what the athletic department was allowed to know over this process could be two different things. So if someone in the athletic department tells you I didn't know and the university president tells you I didn't know, Well, you know, one may say it and the other may just say, I plead the fifth. My point is, even if you feel that way, I'll empathize with that. It's not cool, but it is cool. The SEC violated a gentleman's agreement. Pretty much they did. Uh, you You can guess how much that's really worth in the long run. I think you and I both know the answer to that. But here's the crux of what's really aggravated Texas A&M. They were in an untenable position about a decade ago and long before that. And they looked around and said, what are our options? And they thought the best one, and they were right, was to leave the Big 12 for the SEC. And they did. And they thrived here. They made a splash immediately. There was a kid, I don't know if you remember him, Johnny Manziel. He made a really big dent in the league, changed the way football is played here. It put them on the map. Uh, They now have Jimbo Fisher there. They were on the cusp of playoff contention last year. They were a factor wire to wire. Uh, They've invested. They've recruited right. they got a great staff out there. In other words, what they look at, if you're a Texas A&M fan, you look at this and you say, so we've done everything right and we're still going to get screwed. Well, I think that's partly right. And then the second part is only right if you allow it to be right. This is where I get a little frustrated with Texas A&M. Texas A&M controls the future of Texas A&M. This is not 2008. It's not 1996. There is not some imaginary leash that's tied to you and being held by someone in Austin, Texas. It's a new day, especially if it's happening in this conference, in the SEC. It's a new day. But this whole concept of battered Aggie syndrome, that stuff's real. And if you don't believe it's real, listen to some of the sentiment coming out of College Station. I equated it this week to looking at a tiger a circus tiger in a cage, and the cage is unlocked, but the tiger never runs out of the cage. Why doesn't it? Well, is it just conditioned to believe that those bars mean something, whether the lock's on it or not? My point with Texas A&M is if this were two decades ago, there'd be a reason to feel that way. It's a whole new day. And while you may feel like you're being played in the immediacy by the Texas or by the, uh, the SEC administration and the SEC administrative types, while Texas A&M folks may be very aggravated with the SEC league office right now, why don't you turn that coin upside down for just a second, realize what this nine-year head start has done for you? I don't think you guys think as highly of Texas A&M as some of us do who have no apparent affiliation with the program. Because someone like me, I look at Texas A&M, I see awesome tradition. I see an immaculate stadium. I see equally immaculate facilities. You guys can uh, use dollar bills to smoke cigars wrapped in if you want to. You print money, and so you have invested everywhere you need to invest to be successful. You've got one of the best head coaches in America. He's got one of the best coaching staffs in America. 
and you're on equal footing in this conference, which is really where all this begins and ends. In the Big 12, you were at a disadvantage because Texas had a disproportionate advantage in the Big 12 relative to anyone else. In the SEC, if Texas ends up coming in here and they end up tilting things in their favor, it's only because you allowed it to happen. But what's happening in a lot of cases, when you listen to A&M, some, not all, there have been a lot of very vocal A&M fans that are echoing the same sentiment I am. Some Texas A&M fans have looked at it and say, it's going to be the Big 12 all over. If it's the Big 12 all over, if things are tilted in Texas' favor, it's only because you guys bent the picture sideways. Because that's not the way things operate in the SEC. It's why I just said what I said about Texas a little while ago. Texas does not walk in here and tilt things anywhere. They're standing on the same footing as everyone else. And from that point, what you achieve is what you earn. That's the way it works for Georgia. That's the way it works for Florida. That's the way it works for Kentucky. And that's the way it's worked for you. And it will not change once Texas walks in the door. If they start out recruiting you, it's because they're beating you on the recruiting trail. It's not because the SEC gave them some unfair advantage. So what I'm saying is, are you getting a raw deal? Maybe you are. But having said that, think about what that nine-year head start has given you. It's given you the ability to look across the state and to say, for the first time in that program's history, if we take care of what we need to take care of, Texas is irrelevant. They don't have control over us. The thing's not tilted in their favor anymore. So that's where the frustration's been for me in relation to Texas A&M all week. I look out there and I say, why, why do I think more highly of the capability of Texas A&M, regardless of who's in this conference, than some people at Texas A&M do? I understand the frustration. I understand procedurally where the frustration comes from. I get all that. But if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. So, you know, you can take a stand and you can do whatever you feel is necessary to give just the, the old college try of pushback on this. I understand all that. I would probably do the same if I were you. But there's going to come a point where you got to look and you just got to say game on. I've heard some Aggie fans say it already. I've heard some administrative types out there say it. I wish it was a collective chant instead of just a few people isolated here and there saying that. So that's the feel, at least from where I sit on Texas A&M. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Look, there's a lot of football to talk about, too. I know we talked a lot of um, conference realignment tonight, and we're not done with that. On the very back end of this show, we've got to expand it way out. And we've got to talk about conference realignment as a whole. I mean, the nation's going to look so different in five years than what it looks like right now. So I'm going to do that at the end of the show. But before that, do you know how big Saturday, October 9th, 2021 is going to be? It is the circle date. Every year you start looking in your preseason magazines and your helmet grid schedules and you're trying to find that Saturday. Well, week one is great now, but this Saturday, October 9th, that's the one. If you need to carve it out, go ahead and carve it out. Block it off. Let your friends know. Let your family know. Check the wedding calendar. If someone is inexplicably being married on Saturday, October 9th, even if they're on the other end of this production currently emanating from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, even if they're associated with the show, yes, you just got to distance yourself from those folks for October 9th. Now, you can make peace on the following Monday, but why am I talking about October 9th like this? Well, if we want to split the bill on Saturday, October 9th, to let you know how big this Saturday is, I'm going to show you the undercard, and then I'm going to show you the main events. The undercard would make, in and of itself, a very good Saturday. On the undercard, let's start with Georgia at Auburn, which is one of the biggest games in the SEC. It's already, for Brian Harson, the third underdog spot on the schedule. They will have gone to Penn State. They will have gone to LSU. 
Well, then they got Georgia coming in there. I don't even think they've taken the bye week yet. So already a third really tough spot for them. It's also going to be the toughest true road test for Georgia all year. They've got Florida and Clemson neutral. And so they go to Auburn and they're going to be a sizable favorite there, maybe even a double-digit favorite, which is rare, very rare in that rivalry. But JT Daniels on the road under some hostile environment situation. Let's just see how he performs there. Next up, Michigan at Nebraska. It could be a season turner for Scott Frost. I mean, that's one that I know internally up there. They circle all the time when they play that game, but that's one that's located on a specific portion of the schedule for Nebraska to where it could be, in some fans' minds, do or die time already. But for Michigan, too, this is the second leg of a back-to-back road spot. They go to Wisconsin, and then they go to Nebraska. And so where's Jim Harbaugh there? Because remember, they've already had Washington come in in the first portion of the season. And that's week two, I believe. And then they've got a trip to Wisconsin. They go to Nebraska. When you start talking about potential losable games there, well, that's also the territory that we enter for uh, Michigan. How about Notre Dame at Virginia Tech? That is a third straight opponent for Notre Dame that's coming off a bye. And I think they have six total. There are six opponents in a span of seven games that are coming off buys when they play Notre Dame. This is the third in a row. Yeah. So uh, Notre Dame... Third straight opponent off a bye. Also, I'm very interested for that week one game, North Carolina at Virginia Tech. If North Carolina wins that, so be it, the chalk held. But if Virginia Tech were to win that, how different does this game look, this Notre Dame at Virginia Tech game? Next up is LSU at Kentucky. Now, you may look at this when you say, what's the big deal with Kentucky? Well, it's not in and of itself a big deal. Kentucky's not going to be sitting there in the top 10 in all likelihood, but LSU could very well be a national factor by this point. Fan base certainly thinks they will be. And it's a schedule dynamic game. So LSU, don't just look at this game in a vacuum. Look at the week before, look at the week after. They play, do the LSU Tigers the week before Auburn, and then they go to Kentucky, and then they've got Florida the week after. Kentucky's got this weird string of games where the schedule dynamic comes into play every single week. We continue. Florida State plays North Carolina on this day. So again, we use the context of week one to frame up a potential game in week six. Florida State plays Notre Dame in week one. Notre Dame's like a 10, 11-point favorite. You expect the Irish to win. But just for argument's sake, if Mackenzie Milton is a lot more than a lot of you expect him to be, and maybe that Florida State team takes some quantum leap year one to year two, or let's just say Notre Dame's not quite up to the par you expect them to be, and Florida State wins, well, they go off the radar for a little while. They play some games that aren't going to be on the national marquee, and then they reappear here in week six. And this is a crucial two-game stretch for North Carolina. They're playing Florida State, and then they're playing Miami the next week. Miami's got this day off, by the way. So you got that one. You got Arkansas at Ole Miss. Arkansas stretch at this point versus A&M, neutral site, at Georgia, and then at Ole Miss. So they're on the road three consecutive weeks, which should be illegal, especially in the Southeastern Conference, but I digress. Ole Miss is coming off a game at Alabama. So if the Rebels are surprise contenders at this point, and they could be that even with a loss to Alabama— Very dangerous, very tricky spot there. And I put South Carolina at Tennessee only because those are two first-year coaches, and these are two programs that when you mention one to the other in the SEC East, they both are very quick to say, they're not ahead of us. But both programs think it, and so both can't be right, and they're both in year one of a staff there. So those are interesting in and of themselves. But that's not the main event slate. That's just the undercard. Then we shift to the main event, and it gets really juicy. Those games I just mentioned are on the same day as Alabama plays Texas A&M, as Oklahoma plays Texas, as Penn State goes to Iowa, as Utah goes to USC. So you see some of the notables for each of these games if you're watching on YouTube right now. That Alabama-Texas A&M game is the late kickoff. It is not to be confused with a late kick, of course, but it is an 8 p.m. Eastern showdown out there in College Station, and that's going to be one of the most raucous environments you could ever imagine. Both teams, now if you just go purely in terms of point spread, both teams will be favored to be undefeated at that point. And it's been three years now where Jimbo Fisher's taken on Nick Saban. In three years, they've been handled. This is the year they feel like physically they can match up. And also, you've got a lot of newness with Alabama. Quarterback, offensive line, wide receiver, offensive coordinator, you know all that. Running back. Having said that, they're loaded. But they go in there. And it's a situation, I'm very curious, in fact, I'm curious with Alabama earlier than this, if that offense is going to just go out on the road 
and hum along like it's supposed to, even with all those new parts, because this is not Xbox world. This is not fantasy world. It's real life. Real human beings have to execute that, and it's a lot easier said than done. Earlier that day, I would imagine the noon kickoff, we could try and do a twofer here, being out on the road. Oklahoma, Texas, and Dallas, equally as curious. I mean, the game, the headlines write themselves, but I'm equally as curious for this one at the weeks before and the week after. So you got Red River here in week six, but Oklahoma the week before goes to Kansas State. They're trying to avoid three consecutive losses to the Wildcats. And then the week after, they play TCU. Texas is at TCU the week before this game, and then they got Oklahoma State the following week, and that will be a rested Oklahoma State. So it's a three-week stretch for both teams that will not make or break their season, but if you're talking playoff picture, that's very much in play here. And that's very much a three-game stretch that could define your playoff fate. Penn State at Iowa, the potential record swings here alone are fascinating to think about. You could, of course, have two undefeated teams, and that would be a marquee Big Ten game at that point in Week 6. But also, if you think about which team plays who before they play each other, there are multiple potential losses here. Give you an example. Penn State, you know they open at Wisconsin. They've also got Auburn at home in Week 2. They will have already played Indiana at home. Likewise, Iowa will have played Indiana at home. They go to Iowa State in Week 2, and then they go to Maryland the week before they play this game. So there are several losable games, but neither are insurmountable. They'll be favored in some of those. Uh, That Penn State-Iowa game is going to be a huge, huge game in the Big Ten. And then the game that probably decides the Pac-12 South is the, I would imagine, late-night game. I would imagine. These kickoff times have not been announced. How about Utah at USC? You could have the Pac-12 South on the line. Southern Cal has a very favorable schedule everywhere but this game. I want to say Utah's off the week before. And so there will be no schedule dynamic in favor of Southern Cal. It is at the Coliseum. But other than that, game on here. And if Utah wins that, of course, you got the game and a half lead in the division. If I had to pick the Pac-12 right now, which I'm not, but if I picked the division winner for the South, I would lean Utah at the moment. That's where my mind is at the moment. And so this day, Saturday, October 9th, I feel like a carnival barker, Colin, but this is the day. If you want to introduce a buddy or a girlfriend to college football, if you got to get away one Saturday, if there is a drop-dead date, you just cordon it off and you go disappear in the woods and you watch it on your, I don't know, whatever device you want to take out there, this is the day, Saturday, October 9th. We will know a whole lot by the time the dust settles on that date. Speaking of some of these quarterbacks that we've already named on this very show, I wanted to talk about several of them here just for a couple of minutes and ask some questions that I think you're going to hear a lot as fall camp opens. And we're right on the precipice of fall camp opening up. So I wanted to go around, got four names here that I wanted to circle and ask some questions about. Bryce Young at Alabama is obviously a guy we're going to talk a lot about during the season. That will be the starter at Alabama. I would like to know simply, will he be able to orchestrate their offense. You got so used to, last couple of years really, you've gotten so used to watching them in this machine-like fashion take people down. Last year's offense was as lethal as anything they've ever put out there. But if you think about Mac Jones and you think about the role he played, I mean, he was an assassin now. Mac Jones ends up being the best quarterback who's come through there, but Mac Jones had proven commodities around him. You knew who Najee Harris was. You knew, for example, who Devontae Smith was. You knew all those All-Americans along the offensive line. You knew who Steve Sarkeesian was. So this is not some prediction that they fall off a cliff. Far from that. What I'm saying is, unlike what Mac Jones had to do in already having proven commodities out there, Bryce Young has got to play an instrumental role in making the new commodities, proven commodities. Ajay Hall, for example, we saw him flash in the spring game. If he is a household name by December, it's going to be cause of Bryce Young. If you've got John Mechie pushing for All-American status, it's because of Bryce Young. Jaleel Billingsley, you know, if he pops on the national radar, it's because of Bryce Young. And so he's got to be a guy with newness all around him, including a coordinator that's got to orchestrate things like you would normally expect someone to have to have a few years of starting under their belt to do. At Alabama, they usually have the most talented quarterbacks in the country, so you can somewhat circumvent that, but it's still at the core of what you're looking at with Alabama this year. They open with Miami, and with Miami, Derek King, this one's really easy. You see this one coming from a mile away. I just wonder if the health of his knee allows them to implement their full offense, to run their full offense. I, I look at them, and I did not realize this. When you start to do your research, 
If you just think about what Miami was last year, I did not realize in terms of efficiency, this was the second best passing attack in the ACC when De'Eric King was healthy and he got knocked out in the bowl game. So that's pretty much the whole season. But they were. Like there's a really good foundation down there. And so you think about what all you have going for you this year. If you presume a healthy De'Eric King, and I mean a guy that's able to do all of it, not a guy that's shining in seven on seven where you drop back and you just throw it and you don't really have a live rush in your face and you don't have to scramble east-west. You just do your three, seven, nine-step drop and that's it versus what they're going to ask him to do. You've got Rhett Lashley there now. You have a full year and a half, if you want to call it that, under your belt with those two working together. You've got as good an offensive line situation as Manny has had in his tenure there as head coach. So you've got a lot of elements that you need for success offensively. But it all hinges on the health of Derek King. If he is there, and they out of Miami lead you to believe that he is, if he is there, well, all of a sudden, what does that do in that division? Because everyone's penciled in North Carolina as winning that division. I'm not telling you I disagree with them. What I'm saying is this question here, that could very well hold the key because I've already told you one of our biggest circle games in the ACC this year uh, does not have to do with Clemson. I, I would argue my biggest circle game in the ACC this year is that week seven game where North Carolina has played seven games in a row. They're coming off what will be a fight against Florida State. Meanwhile, Miami is rested the week before and they go to North Carolina. So UNC's running off seven games in seven weeks. Miami's rested. They get to go up there and you could have division on the line. I mean, that's a very big game in no shape, form or fashion. Is that some 13 or 14 point spread? It's going to be a really hotly contested game. Health of De'Eric King, obviously at the forefront. How about C.J. Stroud? That's the name that hardcore college football fans already know. Casual fans are going to learn the name because he's the starting quarterback in all likelihood at Ohio State. I wonder how ready he is to lead them from Bell 1 at the caliber that you expect Ohio State's quarterback to lead. Because this is not a situation at all where you look at a guy and say, boy, he's going to have to shoulder a lot of the load. I mean, he's going to have to he's going to have to drag the rest of that offense across the goal line with him every week. No, they've got racehorses everywhere. It is a ready made offense. It is a sports car that just needs someone who understands how to steer and keep it between the lines. Well, C.J. Stroud is more than that. He is a supreme talent. He's a former five star guy and he's not a true freshman either. So he's been there and he's the guy in all likelihood that wins the starting job. I wonder about the intangibles is what I'm telling you. I wonder when we watch the Minnesota game in week one and the Oregon game in week two, is it a situation where you're watching and then you go to the Buckeye message board afterwards or you listen to the call-in show afterwards and maybe Ohio State's even won the game, but the callers are saying, man, we're still easing him in though. Is it that or is it all systems going, all the intangibles are there and you got the poise and the pocket awareness and he's making checks at the line of scrimmage. You got the situational awareness. All of the intangibles from day one, it's unlikely, it's unreasonable, but it's not impossible. I wonder if he's going to look like that. Because if he looks like that, then early on, you're looking at Ohio State, and the only other question I would have is, how have they had to win games early in the year? Because secondary is a huge question for them. Has to be. Even the most optimistic of Buckeye fans have to look, knowing what wasn't there last year, and say, oh, we got a ways to go. Even if I believe the practice reports, i got to see it with my own eyes. Does he have to win a shootout early? That's why I'm asking these questions. Because if they, if they house Minnesota, if it's 38-14 at the half, well, that's not a big deal, and you can afford to bring him along. If you got 38 on the board, probably ain't bringing much along. He's probably there. But if it's 31-28 at the half or midway through the third quarter in that week one game, and you're having to have him win one early on, inferior opponent, but it doesn't matter. you got two quarters of ball to play. It doesn't really matter what the point spread or power ratings tell you. I wonder if that's the kind of game they may have to win early on. If they do, that's the best shot you probably have at clipping Ohio State in conference. And the last one, and this is one that's going to be a fight in camp, the closer you get to LSU, though, the more they would lead you to believe Max Johnson has the edge in that quarterback battle. Now, I myself lean that way, but I also trust our folks on the ground at LSU, you know they haven't led us wrong before, and so they have a pretty good feel that Max Johnson's the leader in the clubhouse there. It is imperative to me, with LSU even more so than other teams this year, that players take ownership of the 2021 version of LSU. Because a lot of the issues that you heard whispered about last year, those things are rectified when players take ownership. All the best teams, when you listen to coaches at the end of the year, this is a common theme. It's a common refrain. It is that 
you know, about halfway through the year, three quarters of the way through the year, I realized I could take my hands off the wheel. The players had it. You know, you still got to make practice schedules every day. You still got to implement game plans. But the players are really what the DNA of this program was this year. That's what LSU needs to be this year in order to maximize the potential. Well, a big part of that is figuring out your quarterback. Ideally, you would like your quarterback to be one of the alpha leaders on the team. And here's what I'm looking at, and here's what I'm asking with LSU. It won't be the last time you hear me say this. When they get into fall camp, it's Miles Brennan and it's Max Johnson, and you got varying degrees of opinion, 60-40 one way or the other, who wins that job, maybe even 70-30 at this point if you talk to LSU fans. But my point is, even if Max Johnson ends up winning that job, how convincingly does he win it? Is it a week two decision where it's so convincing that Ed Orgeron doesn't see the need to continue that? And more importantly, the team is letting you know that Max Johnson has won this job, which tends to happen in camps. Coaches a lot of times will tell you, I thought the guy had won the job second day in camp, but the team needed to see it. Well, how quickly does the team see it one way or the other? If it is Max Johnson, how quickly does the team see it in the fall? Because that could go a long way to answering the question of whether LSU has that ceiling or has the potential to reach that ceiling. Because otherwise, man, if you start off hot, And if Max Johnson's the guy and those kinds of questions are answered, you're not talking about the threat for multiple losses, five losses, six losses. That stuff's ancient history with LSU. The worst cases, in other words, are ancient history. If Max Johnson starts off hot, you're not asking those questions anymore. What you're asking is, are they going to be undefeated when they play Bama? Are they going to have a minimum of one loss when they play Bama to where that still decides the division? That is the kind of question you start asking if Max Johnson starts off hot. All right, last thing I wanted to hit here, and I wanted to kind of come back. We took a break for a couple of minutes from the conference realignment. But conference realignment is here. It is imminent, and I don't think there's any doubt about that. From sea to shining sea in college football, the headlines and rumors over the next week to month in college football will be incredible. It's why I have stressed make sure you're following me on Twitter, at LateKickJosh, because we don't have a show every hour of every day. And I can guarantee you there's going to be a whole lot to talk about. It's not an if. It's just a matter of when. Now, the million-dollar question, or $150 million question if you read the headlines, is who's going to end up where? Let me tell you now, as I said earlier, there is no skill in that. That's like trying to predict where the debris in a tornado is going to land. You just wait till it lands. Even the decision makers, even Greg Sink, even TV executives, Bob Bowlesby and the like, university presidents, They don't even know. And guys, in a lot of cases, they're the ones whose signatures will be needed on the forms when all is said and done. So there's just a lot of wait and look over both shoulders and wake up at 3.30 in the morning and check the phone to make sure nothing's happening. That is the life of a college football executive over the coming weeks and months. And I know they make a lot of money, but I want you to think about how chewed down to the quick fingernails are if you're an athletic director or maybe you are a TV executive, but especially if you're a conference commissioner, can you imagine this lifestyle right now? Because think about at varying degrees where you're at and what you're on the hook for. You've got coaching salaries that you're on the hook for. You've, of course, got infrastructure projects. You've got facility upgrades. And in some cases, you've got university debt that you have leveraged loans for against your future TV money that now all of a sudden you're finding out may not come to the degree that you thought it would. And it's all changed over the past week. If I were to have walked on this show one week ago, Colin, if I were to have sat on this show and I would have led it with, I got a prediction for you. By the end of SEC media days, the headline will have nothing to do with any team currently in the SEC. It's going to have everything to do with Oklahoma and Texas joining the SEC. You would have had me fit for a straight jacket. I would have been in the nearest padded room, which goes to show you you should never laugh at predictions first off because the craziest ones sometimes end up being the ones coming true. And secondly, Bob Bowlesby was completely blindsided by this. There are many powerful, influential people in the Big 12 and in college football in College Station, Texas, to be included, that were blindsided by this. So it just, it changes that quick. So that's what this next month or two months are going to be like. So I'm just warning you, get ready for it. But the conference realignment 
proposals that I've seen floating around. I haven't really participated. I've seen a lot of you guys send me your best graphics, and you've told me, well, I think if these two teams come to the SEC, this is what the division should look like, and then others say, no, we should go to the quadrants format. Well, who's going to move to the Big 12? Well, who's going to the Big 10? There's no skill in it. There's no skill in it. So here's what I think I do know. I don't think there is any shot that when all the dust settles, we have four legitimate super conferences. Here's what I didn't say. What I didn't say is we don't have enough teams to make up four super conferences. Call it 16 apiece. I'm not telling you we don't have enough teams. I said legitimate. We don't have enough teams for four legitimate super conferences. Do you understand how much oxygen is sucked out of the room with an SEC that consists of already the big boys that are in there, and then all of a sudden you've got Oklahoma and Texas, which completely renders one Power Five conference irrelevant on the national stage. And then also, what are we looking at? Are we seriously going to measure the SEC equal to other conferences at that point? No. And so you don't have legitimacy, what I'm saying, in four super conferences. You could have all the teams out there. You could go raid the Mountain West and the AAC. You could do that, but it wouldn't be viewed as legitimate, which stands to reason is why you walk in and you demand, at least in many at-large spots in a in a playoff coming up as you do guaranteed spots. Makes a lot more sense now. But the other question I have, which is why there is no skill in predicting this, is who told anyone the SEC is done expanding when they land Texas and Oklahoma? Nobody. Nobody told you that. Nobody told you a super conference just has to be 16 teams. Could be 20, could be 24. And if they have other big time brands knocking on the door and they're already willing to up in the apple cart to go get Texas and Oklahoma, Who's to say they don't say yes to two or three more marquee brands, at which point you've even further diluted the concept of having multiple super conferences. And while we're talking about conference realignment, I've seen a lot of proposals out there about the Big 12 and the future thereof that indicate, oh, Bob Bowlesby and the Big 12, well, they'll just go poach the best teams from the American Athletic Conference. Says who? I think some of you have revisionist history about what the Big 12 is minus Texas and Oklahoma. The Big 12 minus Texas and Oklahoma is no more prestigious a conference than the American currently is. I would argue, why wouldn't the Americans start looking to poach teams like TCU? Why wouldn't they start looking to poach teams? And before you say no one goes backwards, no one's going to go from a Power 5 to a G5, you got to do away with those logos. You got to do away with those brands in your head. You're in the middle of an earthquake right now in college football. Stop trying to figure out where everything sits and which building is this and what building is that. It's the middle of the earthquake. Everything's moving right now. Everything's in play. What the American Athletic Conference is today, it may be totally differently viewed than two weeks from now. Likewise with the Big 12. There could be a conference in existence right now that's done away with in two weeks. Everything's in play. So what I'm saying is, I was doing radio in South Carolina the other day and we were talking about this, and we were talking about which teams the Big 12 will poach. And in mid-sentence, and this is not smart, don't do this if you're doing radio hits, I said, you know, the more I think about it, and I'll just think this out live on air with you guys, I'm sorry, who says the Big 12's the one capable of poaching? Like, what attractiveness is there to go to the Big 12 at this point that there wouldn't be to just stay in the AAC? I want to mention more about that in just a second, because here is the, I think, the biggest ripple effect that hasn't already been talked about a lot that's coming. This is going to have a massive ripple effect in the coaching market, And I don't think people are realizing it quite yet because we don't know how these tectonic plates are going to shift and settle eventually. But what happens if when all the dust settles, which I've said 15 times on the show tonight, what happens if when all the dust settles, the Pac-12 is 30% delegitimized? What happens if the AAC is completely blocked out and let's say they do have some of their teams poached? What happens, in other words... If one or multiple current conferences that we view and define as Power Five are no longer that caliber after all is said and done, what happens to major coaches who happen to reside at programs that are in those conferences? I'll give you just a hypothetical here. What if the Pac-12 comes out on the wrong end of this? What does Mario Cristobal do at Oregon? Does he just stay there? What happens if the AAC gets gutted? What does Billy Napier do? After he's turned down multiple opportunities... To have SEC jobs wisely, I think, because he's been positioning himself to take the job he wants instead of just any job that comes along. Well, all that jockeying and positioning and strategery was conducted with the old model. What if the new model says, get out as soon as you can? And you're looking around. There are several coaches. Matt Campbell at Iowa State. 
who's taking Iowa State? You know, if the Big 12 continues the implosion, what happens with Iowa State? So there are some big-time coaches out there that could all of a sudden be on the market without losing their jobs. And maintaining the same trajectory that they're currently on, you just look around and you say, the landscape's changed. And I I don't know anything about the Pac-12. What I'm saying is, for example, Mario Cristobal at Oregon right now, they're humming along. But what happens all of a sudden if the Pac-12 is not tomorrow what the Pac-12 is today? He could look at it and say, oh, well, I'm loyal to this brand, you know, live or die. I'm, I'm loyal to this brand. Or he could say, well, I also have my career to worry about here. And then you ask yourself, what happens to the transfer portal? If players all of a sudden are reading web articles and looking on Instagram and TikTok and looking on the web and looking on TV and they're being told the Power 5 program you committed to is no longer in a conference that's labeled Power 5 anymore, you're not going to have as easy access to this and that and yada, yada, yada. What happens to the transfer portal? So you see there are a lot of ripple effects out there still to come, and I think it's inevitable at this point, for conference realignment to where you are in the middle of a college football earthquake. There is no skill in predicting when it will end. There's no skill in predicting what the landscape will look like when it's done. Just find the nearest door frame. I grew up in Georgia. No one knows earthquake protocol there, but I watched Saved by the Bell. So I know that when the earthquake strikes, you get under the door frame. Just find the nearest door frame right now. My advice to you, the college football public. Uh, we have a lot of folks in the live chat right now. So thank you so much. Look, here's what we need. Just a couple of things. They're all free. We had a huge surge in subscriptions to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel this past week. We need those to continue. As those continue, big partners are attracted. Director Colin and I were just dealing with one right before the show. Got a huge meeting tomorrow. In fact, it's a huge week for the show for reasons that you will very, very, very soon see. So keep that in mind. But also, subscribing to this channel, liking this video, and then following that Instagram and Twitter account, worth its weight in gold. At Late Kick Josh, by the way. And this is the best week ever to do it because there are going to be a lot of breaking news nuggets and items out there that I'm probably going to want to talk to you about that otherwise we would have to wait for a little while for. So we have soon got a format change coming. First week of August, I think we have slated to go to three nights a week live. That'll be Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday. Got a ton of momentum with the show. Momentum is very real in this world. So thank you so much for that. Uh, Thank you for tuning in tonight. Have a great start to your week. For Director Colin, for our entire crew in Fort Lauderdale, I'm Josh Pate. Thanks for watching. God bless. of sports mixed with your pop culture along with humor and celebrity interviews your earbuds are enjoying the rich eisen show dan orlovsky are you still a Jaden daniels is the best quarterback available in the draft guy i think the three things that make it stand out for me are number one i think his ball placement versus man coverage is the best in the draft every quarterback in the nfl is accurate he's got the best on tape number two most transferable stuff to the nfl and then i think the third thing is pocket peace search for the rich eisen show on youtube or wherever you listen